Americans are not born understanding why democracy is valuable, what democracy expects of its citizens, so forth. We do a terrible job of teaching it. You can graduate from virtually any high school or college in this country, never having read the Constitution, never having read the Federalist Papers, not understanding anything about the operations of government. So I am on something of a personal crusade to make civics a much more central part of the curriculum of schools. From McKinsey and Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard Dr. Richard Haas describing an issue he's deeply passionate about, and it's one of many he's touched on as a career diplomat. For 20 years, Richard led the United States Council on Foreign Relations. He just recently stepped down and is now President Emeritus of the Council, and he's taken on a new role as Senior Counselor at the investment banking advisory firm, Centerview Partners. Richard has deep experience in geopolitics. His diplomatic service includes counseling Colin Powell in talks on Afghanistan, as well as serving for three years as the U.S. Envoy on Peace Negotiations in Northern Ireland. Amidst all that, Richard has also written 17 books. In his most recent, Bill of Obligations, 10 Habits of Good Citizens, he argues that for American democracy to survive and hopefully thrive, the very idea of citizenship must be revised and expanded. We'll share a link in the show notes where you can learn more about it. We're excited to have him on the podcast today to take us through some of the key ideas from his book and to share his perspectives on how business leaders can navigate today's complex political landscape, which seems to get more complex by the day. Please note that this conversation was recorded before the recent outbreak of war in the Middle East. Richard joined our senior partner, Celia Huber, at a strategic leadership CEO forum we held in New York City. Now, here's Celia. All right, great. So, Richard, I thought we'd talk about three things. Your perspective on what is happening in the world right now, given your unique vantage point. The second is I'd love to talk about the Bill of Obligations book, why you decided to write it now. And finally, maybe bringing that home to our audience, how that Bill of Obligations should play out for CEOs and how they should get involved in the world. So I understand you spend a lot of time thinking about what's in people's inboxes. So if you were a new CEO now, what would be in your inbox to think about both uh, domestically and abroad? Look, all the normal things are in CEOs' inboxes. You don't need me to tell you that. What I think is slightly different about this moment is this, uh, a few additional things because none of your jobs is challenging enough the way it is. And that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> one is, and we'll talk about, seeing and I talk about it, is just the international. This is a far more turbulent era than we've seen in the world for some time. And even a short list would be the revival of geopolitics. We see it in Europe. We see it with U.S.-Chinese relations, North Korea, Iran, what have you. Just uh, all the optimism that greeted the end of the Cold War has essentially, shall we say, faded. Then you have all the global issues, and whether it's climate or other. And what's obvious about them, and we saw it during the pandemic, is the gap between global challenges and global responses. People always use the phrase international community. The deep, dark secret is there isn't one. And the gap between, if you will, the demand for global cooperation and the supply of it, there's an enormous gap there on every issue. So you've got that going on. You've got on new technologies that are emerging and the domestic, but even more, I think at times, the international challenges 
for managing their introduction and their their spread. Again, enormous gap between. Uh, we're going to see. We're seeing it with AI, just like we saw it with, uh, with with cyber and other issues. And then, lastly, it kind of gets to the other topic. Um, until recently, if you were a CEO, you could get up in the morning, and after you put on whatever you put on and your shoes and the rest. Um, one thing you really didn't have to worry about in a profound way was what was going on in this country. And that luxury is gone. And what we're seeing are two phenomena. One is the degree of political dysfunction in this uh, country. And then more fundamentally, and we'll get to it, are questions about the, the operations of American democracy and the fidelity to American democracy. And think about it, if you're one of the great structural comparative advantages of the United States are certain assumptions people could make about the rule of law. As you mentioned, I spent three years as the U.S. envoy to uh, Northern Ireland. I then went back another time as an international mediator. I've seen what happens to societies when law and order can no longer be assumed. Problem for workers getting to work, problems for how workers act at work, problems for consumers getting to stores. People have to worry about their kids going to school and so forth. Well, guess what? That can happen here. Guess what? That, to some extent, is happening here. And so the comparative advantage about the United States is, is much less pronounced. So I think if you're a, a CEO, what strikes me is on top of all the stuff, again, you've always had, is now both the external and the internal contexts are less benign, mm -hmm. more turbulent than they were. And I think part of your challenge is the models and that we're all comfortable with working with don't exactly know how to factor those in. We're pretty good on traditional quantitative stuff and we can all do our P&Ls and we can all do our spreadsheets. Well, how do you do spreadsheets on the kind of stuff I've just talked about? How do you deal with probabilities? How do you deal with consequences? So uh, given the complexities, then what would you advise, say, your colleagues at Centerview to think about in terms of scenarios or uh, how to factor any of that risk into the planning process? Well, I mean, the, whenever you're talking about risk, you've got to identify it, and then you've, you've got to try to, again, look at both likelihood and implications, and then you just multiply it out. And you've got to look, it's obviously scenario uh, dependent. But I mean, take, take the, the subject I'm asked most about, which is China. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, you've got certain risks given uncertainties about China's own trajectory, economic, political. We've seen all the economic headwinds in China. What to make of that? There's 20 measures that the economy's had some hard times. One has to look at things you want to sell there as opposed to things you want to buy from. But you just, You've just got to think it through, and you've got to, I mean, diversification uh, in, in both directions. Uh, I don't know any CEO who's not looking for ways to reduce dependence. Yeah. As difficult as that can be, because in many cases there aren't perfect, shall we say, substitutes. You, mean, you may say, I, I don't want to be as dependent as I am on China, but Vietnam and India are not going to necessarily give you very, very, uh, they're not going to give you, shall we say, full alternatives or full yeah. substitutes. So the question is just working your way through. Again, not elimination, but and you don't want to give up access to a market. So again, the question is just how do you position yourself so you're better able to almost to increase your own resilience? It seems to me that's not a bad word for this era for a CEO, which is how does one increase resilience? Yeah. 
You know, China's on everyone's agenda, as you no. mentioned. And on one hand, uh, they are doing well on several tech battles, so EVs, batteries. Yep. But on the other hand, so they're solar. solar. They're losing some of the newer pieces of Gen AI. They have an aging population. Yep. What do you think is in their best interest? Well, I would never presume to answer that because part China, under its current leadership, has made a determination. State-owned enterprises are not fading away. If anything, they're getting more support. And you look at the numbers, you know, you've got high youth unemployment, you know, significant but lower levels of economic, and, and the double-digit year is never coming back. It's too mature of an economy uh, for that. I think you know, the long-term demographic issues are really interesting. China's now 1.3, 1.4 billion projections by the end of the century, which so we've got eight decades to go, but you're looking at 800 million. That's a significant change. So productivity issues are going to be really Challenging. Just, but I think, you know, at some point you'll see a degree. I think there'll have to be a slight bit of economic loosening, but I don't think there'll be anything fundamental. I don't see any change in the prioritization of uh, central control. Okay. I know that you've been you've done a lot of work in the Middle East. So what's important to CEOs when you think about that? I think, I think yeah. the big interesting thing in, in the Middle East is obviously Saudi Arabia, UAE. I mean, you've got areas there. So these are significant economic players. And I think that is you know, likely to, to, to continue. And I think you know, for CEOs and all that, that part of the Middle East remains attractive. All right, great. Richard, I want to turn a little bit more domestically into sure. your book, but maybe let's just start with a, an open question on why did you feel it was the right time to write this book? Because uh, I got up in the morning and I saw what was going on. Uh, <laughs> look, um, It goes back to what I said at the beginning. For a long time, we could all get up in the morning and we'd make our list, our mental list of things we were worried about and how to contend with and what was going on. There were domestic challenges, but the challenges were circumscribed. And what increasingly worried me over the years were two things. Again, I've alluded to both. One is our ability to be politically functional. And I think our political functionality, right now we're seeing the extreme version of dysfunctionality. But look at all the challenges. Take, take immigration. We have known the elements of a comprehensive immigration reform package for decades. We can't move on it. And I, I, go, I can go through a lot of other things. Look at the debt. Look at, there's a lot of things that are going on that we just, our politics are such that we can't contend successfully or adequately with them. So one is simply growing political dysfunctionality, which worries me. And I see it in the city. I live here. Uh, the crises we face over things like migration, mm -hmm. issues with crime, public schooling. We've, we've got massive, massive, you know, we just hit 33 trillion in debt. I can go, it's a long list. And I don't see that the, if the, what I described before about a global gap between global challenges and global responses, I also see a domestic gap between domestic challenges and domestic responses. And the gap's getting, is pretty large and getting larger. So that's one thing. That's a question of functionality. And then I do think we have this issue of democracy. Democracy in this country is in some trouble. I kind of get why. I mean, imagine you're under 40. So you've been politically conscious to the extent you're conscious for half your life. Well, look at the last 20 years. Begin with 9-11. You've had a couple of financial crises, 2007, 8, and the more recent things. You had COVID, 
and all the disruption of that. You had the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. You see the political dysfunctionality. And you would say to yourself, what's so hot about democracy? I see what democracy does to me. I don't really see what it does for me. So I think you've had a, a falling off of support for democracy. I just think that American democracy is going to be a challenge, shall we say. And I don't think, again, it's all or nothing. I, but if you look around the world, every democracy around the world is going through a degree of what's known as backsliding. The term of art is illiberal democracy. But democracies are becoming less classically liberal. That has happened in the United States. It would happen more depending upon the outcome of the uh, of the election and things about pressures on judiciaries, pressures pressures on our civil servants, pressures on journalists, and so forth. So I think we would see a greater use of the organs of power to shape American politics, and I think that could well happen depending upon the outcome of the 24 election. So in your book, you talk about the 10 habits of good citizens, uh, and rather than go through all 10, are there ones that you want to highlight? I think I have my card with you. You have your card? Good. I've got a card also. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always get embarrassed when I, oh, God, I can, I, I can remember eight of them. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the old Mel Brooks thing with Moses coming and drops, you know, drops one of the tablets. Uh, look, the, the most basic, is, which is the first, is to be informed. If Thomas Jefferson could have joined us today, he would have said, you know, that's the, that's the most that's the prerequisite for all else. And that implies or suggests both the availability of information, uh, free press and so forth, as well as the interest of citizens to avail themselves of it. Mm -hmm. And so we could, but I, I think that's essential, being involved. Democracy is not a spectator sport. The fact that in the recent midterm elections, as critical as they were, more than half the eligible voters didn't vote, uh, that's a problem. Interesting thing though, didn't get any attention. In the state of Pennsylvania, automatic voter registration was, was signed into law by the governor, by Josh Shapiro. Roughly half the states in the country, I think it's 20, 24 if I'm, I think I'm right, have automatic voter registration. Uh, so when you, when you do your driver's license or something, you if you fill out the form, you're automatically registered to vote, which is uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but you want to make it easy. So I think things like that are important. Um, a lot of behavioral things, civility and so forth. If I could, if I could focus on uh, two things, one would be uh, civics. We've got to do a better job of teaching our story in our schools. Americans are not born understanding why democracy is valuable, what democracy expects of its citizens, so forth. We do a terrible job of teaching it. You can graduate from virtually any high school or college in this country, never having read the Constitution, never having read the Federalist Papers, not understanding anything about the operations of government or what citizen, the relationship between citizens and government. So I am on something of a personal crusade to make civics a much more central part of the curriculum of schools at the high, middle school, high school, and college university level. Great, one great breakthrough this year, Stanford this year, for the first time, will require all of its freshmen, I think it's 17, 1800 freshmen, to take a course in civics. And what I'm hoping is when a prestigious school like Stanford does that, maybe some other schools will, will do that. So, you know, we wouldn't think of having somebody graduate a school if they couldn't read or write or do math or get online. 
why is being prepared to be a citizen any less significant? So that to me is a big, big deal to support the uh, teaching of uh, civics. I'm also a big believer in public service. I don't think it can be mandated because Americans don't like mandates, but you want to incentivize it. And one of the things that employers could do, for example, just like you often would hire vets, because you'd say they've done public, well, why not hire people who have done public service? And if we have widespread gap year programs, it would be great for employers to give them a, a leg up. Graduate schools or colleges could give them a, a leg up in, in, uh, in admissions. Schools could also help, it can be public-private partnerships to fund. But I want public service. I want it so people un get used to the idea of doing things for the country. We want the best and the brightest to go in. And so uh, I want public, and also I want people from a rural town in Arkansas to meet somebody from Brooklyn. I, I worry that increasingly we're so separate in this country. Well, public service can be a way to break down some of the, uh, some of the so I think things like, what I like about civics and public service, those, these are things we can introduce programs are. Virtually everything else I write about require individual initiative. Uh, to be civil, to be open to compromise, to put country before party or person. These are behavioral things. But there are some things that we can do politically to encourage certain behaviors. And I, again, I would start with civics and public service. And there are other things, though, that CEOs can do. One is you can make it very easy for your employees to vote. Give them time off. Thousands of firms in this country do. Give them half a day off to go vote or a day off to go work in polling stations. Encourage that. And then uh, one thing, if you're a larger firm, every university I know has a program where if, if a professor wants to take a leave, say to go work at the State Department for a year or two, you can do two years and come back. Why won't more businesses do that? Encourage people to go work for the city, the state, the federal government, and have a job for them when they come. It may not be the same job, you've got to fill it, I get it, but have something for them. Because one, it's good that they do it, and two, when they come back, my guess is they'll be better. So I would encourage those kinds of leaves if you're big enough to uh, absorb it. And then really controversial, and I'll lose you here, uh, I think CEOs need to think hard before they do things like support candidates who are election demolishers. Need to think hard before they advertise on outlets that give voice and support to people who are undermining American democracy. You depend upon the rule of law. It's, one, it's like oxygen. You don't notice it, but we all depend upon the rule of law in this country. We don't want to wake up in a world where the IRS is weaponized against us or the Justice Department is weaponized against us, where we have violence in the streets. So I, I, I just think CEOs ought to be doing more, if you will, to ensure that the oxygen of the rule of law in this country is, uh, is uh, adequate. At this point, Richard took questions from the audience. One audience member referred to Richard's comments on the importance of citizens being informed and asked about the best way to encourage that. So I have a couple of things. One is, um, you know, we all talk about cyber hygiene and the whole idea is your password probably shouldn't be one, two, three, four. So we need to think about information hygiene. And so one of the lessons ought to be you don't single source information. I mean, if you had a medical issue, you would probably get a second opinion. Why don't we get second opinions on information? That'd be one thing. Second of all, remember this, social media. The first word is social. It's not called information media. Uh, it's not called serious factual media. It's called social media, which is great for social stuff. 
but uh, these are mini communities. These are micro communities, often uh, self-selected, certain biases. Don't go there for information. New Jersey has introduced a requirement in its public schools where you teach what's called information literacy. Finland does it. The whole idea is you teach essentially best practices. It's, it's the direct answer to your question. So we want to teach young people things like multiple sourcing, where not to go, where to go, what are places that have fact checkers, what are places that have editors, what are places that have certain reputations. So you want to, what's the difference between a fact and an opinion? What's the difference between either and a prediction uh, or between any of those and a recommendation? How, almost the, how do you divide up stuff and so forth. Um, so I think there's things we can do a much better job of, of teaching. And that seems to me, again, I, I would make it part of a civics curriculum. I would think part, if, if being an informed, involved citizen is a prerequisite for all else, then I would think a civics curriculum, in addition to having people you know, read the Federalists, whatever else they do, ought to be teaching these kinds of things. Because uh, you're right, it, again, it's the contradiction of the time. We're swimming in information, but we're swimming in misinformation as well. Another audience member asked for Richard's thoughts on India's economic trajectory. Here's his response. India's economy is doing pretty well. The, the growth and so forth. I, the best thing I know about India to understand it is the idea of two Indias. And you've got the India, Bangalore and all that. You've got a large middle class of, I don't know, three, four hundred million people. But that still leaves 800 million or more people who are not part of that. A lot of rural poverty and so forth. So there's still a lot of India that is being left behind. Now it's getting more wired in terms of the internet, better infrastructures being built. So we'll see what happens. You know, a little bit, you know, it's got a great future. The question is whether the future will ever become the present. So there's a lot of hype about India, both economically and strategically, and almost by definition, a lot of it's hype. So I think that the reality is that India has some economic promise, but it's not going to be a substitute for China. So it's, it's a mixed bag. But it's hard to have a, what's the word, a considered conversation about India. It seems to be almost in a, a degree of black and white where, when in fact, like most of life, it, a lot of it deserves to be in the gray. Another forum participant asked Richard what one problem, global or domestic, Richard would fix if he had a magic wand. He answered both. Domestically, it's easy to identify it, not to do it. Uh, if I could fix one thing, it would be public education. I mean, think about it. What the one requirement for every American, it's not that they vote. It's not that they do public service. It's they go to school through the age of 16. So that is essential for whether it's teaching citizenship or basic life skills. But that's the ladder of American society. You know, we talk about... Uh, equal opportunity. The only way to make equal opportunity a reality rather than a slogan is through public education. That's where most young people get educated. And right now it is, with very few exceptions, a failure. We can talk about why, about how it's funded, about unions, about teacher training. There's a million reasons why. But this is central to our future. And this, this worries me as much as anything. And one of my best friends used to be the commissioner of schools in this city. And it was sad the day he said, because he knew, he knew I was doing all this work on 
both civic education, but also teaching people about the world. And he said, you should focus on colleges. It's really hard. It's essentially it's to try to change uh, public schools. And that made me really sad, because that's scale. And that's how you get access to people, because so much flows from that. In the world, oh, I got a long list. What would I? Uh, <laughs> I would say, um, well, actually, I think it's an area for some potential optimism. And I'm gonna, it's, it'll probably surprise you, will be climate change, which I think could be still the defining challenge of the century. Beyond geopolitics will always be with us. But think about it. We got through the great global crisis of our time over the last few years, uh, COVID. 20 million people plus or minus died, if you believe the numbers in the Lancet. And how did we get through it? Well, it's two technologies. One was mRNA vaccines, the other was Zoom. And Zoom was critical because it allowed us to continue our lives studying, working without putting our health at risk. Was, imagine what it would have been like if we didn't have it. And then obviously the vaccine, instead of eight years, it was eight months. Amazing. Okay. Which leads me to climate change. But I'm excited potentially about technology. We see it with renewables. I see it with carbon capture. I see it with batteries. Well, it might be with solar reflection stuff in the atmosphere. Who knows? I mean... But ultimately, if there's a solution there, it's going to be, um, so it's not so much a magic wand, but I, I'm excited about the potential of business and perhaps with a degree of government support, like we saw with uh, the vaccines, to accelerate the emergence. I don't think diplomacy is going to be the answer. Mm -hmm. I, think, I don't think it's going to be politics. I think it's going to be technology there. So my magic wand would be to accelerate uh, that, to basically look for ways to... Uh, accelerate the uh, emergence of technology. And then we're going to have to think about, almost like vaccines, how we scale up production and make them available. So if there are breakthroughs, how do we make them available? Think about the world over the next 30 years. The one place in the world that's going to be massive population increase is Africa. Africa is going to grow by a billion people over the next 20 to 30 years, plus or minus. Okay. So we have got to have a future where there's adequate energy, but doesn't exacerbate the, the climate issue. We've got to, so once these new technologies are developed and introduced, we've got to make them available at scale and we've got to make them affordable. And that becomes as much a political challenge, but, uh, but that's, that's the kind of stuff I think we're gonna have to think about. Next, an audience member asked what Richard saw as the path forward for Western Europe, which is dealing with both low economic growth and an energy crisis. Uh, look, I thought, slower levels of economic growth uh, and innovation. Uh, I worry a little bit about some of the populism we're seeing in Western Europe. It's different, no different than here. Uh, you see it in Germany, you see it in... Uh, so I think there'll be governance challenges in, in, in countries. The EU has strengths and weaknesses. You don't need me to go through uh, all that. Will Europe play a larger defense or strategic role? Maybe. I mean, it's stepped up quite a lot to help um, Ukraine. But if, imagine the United States, it's not inconceivable, if the United States wavers on Ukraine, would Europe fill the gap to some extent? So I think there's just big questions. But the, you know, the good news about Europe, you know, it's this enormous 400, 500 million, depending on what you call Europe uh, area, GDP, not far from the size of ours, though it's lagging, you know, it's fallen slightly behind. So it's still all those things you know, uh, in terms of uh, economics and people, and it's the rule of law is pretty strong. Some might say it's over-regulated over and so forth. But I still think it's pretty good. 
a member of the audience from Mexico asked Richard about his views on Latin America and particularly on Mexico in light of an upcoming election there. Gracias por su pregunta. A couple of reactions. I will say that if, we, if you had asked your question 20 or 30 years ago, I would have given you a much more positive answer. Latin America was the, would have won the, the award for most improved region of the world, and now not so much. And these things go in cycles. But Latin America is going through a much more populist era. Democratic institutions, even in Chile or Colombia, are being uh, challenged. Places like Mexico, and you know more about it than I do, I expect. Um, you know, you got the election coming up, we'll see. I think, that, but as you say also, the good news is uh, it's a big economic block. Uh, a lot of manufacturing is, is going there. Even more would go there if the government at times would be more helpful. <laughs> By the way, the auto workers ought to keep their eye on that. Uh, the cost differential between producing a car there and in uh, Michigan, shall we say, is rather uh, substantial, to say the uh, least. You know, we don't have much of a U.S. policy there. To be honest, you know, we don't, so we don't have a trade policy towards Latin America. You know, we're not, we're not going to have any new agreements there, which is, I think, a tragic mistake. We don't, you know, I can go on about that. So I think you know, Latin America will continue to go through cycles of um, where democracy will be challenged. We see it in Argentina and so forth. We saw it in Brazil. The judiciary remained robust. But I think that's, I mean, I, I don't see that pattern changing. I think there'll be cyclical patterns of uh, challenging democracy. You'll have populism and so forth. Uh, we'll see what happens in Mexico under the new government. But I'm not worried about geopolitics in Latin America. I'm not worried that Brazil's going to invade Argentina. Latin America is actually, for the most part, geopolitics free. It's quite interesting, almost like parts of Europe. What it's not free of is the internal stuff. And I think it's the unevenness of governmental capability. That's the real challenge for lots of, and, and regionalism is still pretty weak. Uh, as, as, so I think it'll be mixed. I don't think it'll be a, a great story. I don't think it'll be a terrible story. I think it'll be an in-between story. Great, Richard. It was wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for coming, Thank you Richard. all. And many thanks to Richard and Celia. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at itsr at mckinsey.com, which stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to all who have already done so. We really appreciate the comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. That's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR. And there you can easily browse our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our insights page at mckinsey.com SCF for strategy and corporate finance. Follow us on Twitter or X at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week 
inside the strategy room.